Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up on the program today, we're talking a bit more about what we've been hearing on the federal election campaign as well. More community organizations are raising some concerns about vaccine cards in B.C. Those set to go into place, they will be needed to be shown as of September 13th in some non-essential businesses. We'll take a look at that. Plus, those cards have already been rolled out. Today was the first day in Quebec. We'll find out how that system is going. The first, though, one of the big stories we have been talking about, and I know other hosts on this station have been talking about this as well, the aggressive coyotes in Stanley Park. And joining me to talk more about this is NPA Park Board Commissioner John Cooper. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, You and Trisha Barker, another Park Board Commissioner, have called for a special meeting. What are you hoping to get done? Well, I think there needs to be some clarity. Uh, um, the, you know, the pr- province needs to know what the park board wants to happen, and I'm af- I'm just afraid that there's been you know there's been a lot of talk, and perhaps some mixed messaging on on the situation. I mean, we've had a situation where you know people have been injured. We're seeing an escalating number of attacks. We're now closing the park uh, for extended from seven seven to uh, seven in the morning, and uh, you know. People are not using the park the way they should be because they are, they're fearful of, uh, of attack. Uh, you put out on Twitter earlier today uh, wanting this special meeting with the intention of asking for the immediate removal of the coyote population. Have you had any response to that? Uh, well, it's uh, started the procedure, so it requires a letter from Commissioner Barker and myself, both NPA commissioners. Any two commissioners can call a special meeting. So then that goes to the chair. So we're waiting uh, for a response. Don't have one yet, but he has an obligation to call one. Has to give other commissioners 48 hours notice of a meeting. So I would anticipate likely Friday or early next week. And uh, I'm hopeful that... Uh, Commissioners will, will be willing to send a strong message to the province to say, you know, enough is enough. Uh, it's time to remove these coyotes and, and get people back to enjoying what is a jewel of our city. And when you say remove, are you suggesting relocate or are you suggesting destroy? Well, that's a decision that's made by the uh, Provincial uh, Wildlife uh, Protection Service, not me. Um, they they have uh, either, either option and uh, I'm not going to get into telling them what they should or shouldn't do. Uh, I just think we need to ensure public safety in uh, in our park. There has been an announcement that at 1 o'clock today, so less than an hour from now, uh, media have been invited for the BC Conservation Officers Service as well as the Vancouver uh, Board of Parks and Recreation. Uh, Donnie Rosa, the general manager, uh, as well as one of the conservation officers, uh, Drew Milne, they're providing an update on coyotes in the park. Do you have any idea? Do you know what's being announced at that, me- uh, at that news conference? No, I don't, and uh, I hope it's something stronger than we've heard to date. And, um, you know, the, the, the reason for me bringing this forward is to try and, and exert some pressure for some immediate action. You know, we've had um, a young child bitten. We've had a, um, a woman, I believe, who was on uh, CKNW who had a pretty severe injury. She had severed tendons in her leg, quite horrific. And, um, you know, we need to ensure public safety in our parks. If the same thing was happening with uh, with some dogs on the street of Vancouver, there would be action. And, um you know, it's there's been a lot of time taken, and I appreciate that. And I've kind of held off because I wanted to get as much information as I could. You know, they've been dealing with the Stanley Park Ecological Society, the provincial authorities, but we're not seeing action. And I think action is needed, and it's needed quickly.
Right, because even anecdotally, when I've, I've been talking to people about this, not on the air, but off the air, people are, are quite surprised. And I think in some cases angry that the answer right now, the action right now is to shut the park at 7 p.m. Because as people have mentioned to me, we pay taxes. That's supposed to be a public space. It's supposed to be a place that people can use while the weather is still nice and saying that it's not acceptable that the answer right now is to shut it down. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I mean, um, people, especially, you know, we've noticed the increased use in our parks. And um, the last thing we want to do is prevent people from going in our largest park, uh, you know, 1,000 acres of Stanley Park. Plus, there's also a lot of users group, user groups there. For instance, you know, uh, there's clubs that play rugby in the park. There's all kinds of activities that happen in the park, including uh, some of our partners like the aquarium, which just recently reopened, um, you know, the restaurants in the park. Obviously, when you have a situation like this, let's say you want to go for dinner and the park is closed at, uh, at 7 o'clock, you know, that certainly... Um, hurts your ability to uh, to get out of the park or to fully enjoy your, your dinner in one of the restaurants in the park. And I mean, those are all sort of unintended consequences of this actual inaction by the park board. And I really think that the Cope Green Alliance on Park Board, including the chair, Camille DeMond, would be quite um, uh, missing in action on this file uh, over the whole summer. So uh, really out of frustration, uh, Commissioner Barker and I thought, we've got to get something going here. So... That's what we've done. It was my understanding, though, even with the 7 p.m. closure, I thought I had heard Donnie Rosa say yesterday that that didn't mean you couldn't go to the restaurants if you were doing that. But they were asking people just to make sure if you're if you're doing that, go to the restaurant, go to that place, but then don't kind of wander through the park. Right. I mean, that's the messaging. But you can appreciate when people make a decision on where they're going to go, they may want to go. You know, a lot of people might go for dinner and then they want to go for a little walk in the park. Uh, that's part of the experience of going for dinner in Stanley Park. So if you if you close off that avenue, it certainly makes it less attractive. You might as well go to a restaurant uh, where you don't have any concerns. And I think that's the the unintended consequences of the inaction um, of dealing with this situation. And um, you know we have coyotes around Vancouver, certainly in in various parks, and you see them in Pacific Spirit Park and up. But they're not aggressive. For for whatever reason, these have turned aggressive and it's made the situation unsafe. And I think we, as the Park Board, have an obligation to send a strong message that uh, it's not acceptable. Yeah, and I know a lot of people would agree. Looking ahead, though, and you make the point that I think others have said, too, what is it that specifically has happened to these coyotes? And I know we've had some experts weighing in uh, saying, well, and, and the footage showing that, yes, people have been feeding these animals. They've come to know humans as a food source. Uh, this, this will get dealt with at some point. And when we move on from this, so what happens next? How do we ensure that behavior isn't repeated and we don't have a whole other group of coyotes that are also conditioned? to become aggressive in six months or a year from now right well I think I think we're obviously we're there's a there's some learnings happening here and I, I think that's important and certainly you know the signage and the education and certainly not to feed them I know the park board has started to install install some animal proof uh, bins but we've had the same bins in the park board for many many years something has changed and um, you know I'm not uh, I'm not an expert on animal behavior so I really can't comment on it I do know that, you know, the park was largely vacant for a period of time during COVID. It's it's perhaps the fact that maybe they just uh, had a bit of wider range and and weren't used to people and and didn't develop that fear. 
uh, if it's a you know a, a new pups or something growing up. I you know I'm not an expert, so I can't comment. All I can say is I just think it's time for action, and um, I think the park board needs to be clear on what they want to happen. And Commissioner Barker and I are trying to be clear and say, look, we need to remove the coyotes and we need to do it immediately. All right. We will leave it there. John Cooper, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Joe. Well, there has been a lot of talk about vaccine certificates. We're still waiting to get more details on exactly what it's going to look like in B.C. when people are able to have that information on a phone or in cases where you don't have a phone, the government saying there will be an option for a paper copy and a check so that your identification is verified. But there are more concerns being raised as well about more vulnerable groups and people that perhaps will be cut off from essential services because of the vaccine certificate. So joining me now to talk more about this is Ingrid Mendez, the executive director of a group called Watari. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about your group and what you do? Um, so um, uh, I work for Watari Counseling and Support Services, and we are an organization here in the downtown east side supporting the community with um, different um, services, uh, counseling, um, youth outreach. Uh, we do outreach to agricultural migrant workers. Uh, we support youth 101. Um, and we also do a program in the schools, in the primary schools here in Vancouver called STAR, Stop, Think, Assess and Respond. So we do um, a wide range of services and support here um, in the community. Also, we are making meals right now um, that we deliver in different SROs along with um, community partners um, here in the downtown side. All right. And I know you are one of several groups that has raised some concerns or highlighted some issues, potential issues with vaccination passports or vaccination certificates, whatever you want to call them. What are the concerns you have? Well, our big concern is that we have uh, been running um, vaccination clinics here at Watari with the support of our partners at Vancouver Costa Health. Um, we have done it at Raycam Cooperative Center, and we have um, done it also um, with the support of BC Federation of Labor. And we have been um, getting into our vaccination clinics, um, um, the community that is here with precarious immigration status or undocumented. And our big concern with this is that they don't have a BC services card or a BC ID that can help them get to the certificate. So um, we have received a big number of calls since this announcement from people asking us what they are going to do about this and how they are going to get to this uh, certificate if they don't really have um, an ID that can help them get to this. Right, because I, I think a lot of people would initially just think of if you have a phone, it would be easy enough to do that. But I guess even though we're still waiting for some of the details, even if you have a phone, you're still going to need identification. You're still going to need information to put into it to get that certificate. Yes, that's correct. I do have a phone, but I don't have a busy services car. And I was trying to get the BC Services app, and I couldn't because I don't have a BC Services card. Um, so 
And and there are many people do, who don't have uh, a phone that they can put this app on, or their phone is too old um, that they don't don't get to be able to have an app in that phone. So there are many concerns, and we are really calling on the government and the provincial health officer to uh, please work with us in trying to make this accessible to people that cannot get access to to this certificate or this passport or however we're going to call it, and that they they need it. Um, For instance, agricultural migrant workers who need to go back to the country to visit their families or need to go because it's the end of the season, they need access to this uh, passport or this vaccination um, certificate so that they can get into a plane. So we're asking the government to work with us, community-based organizations, in trying to make this accessible for everyone, regardless of having an ID or having an immigration status. Uh, do you see it being any different, though, when you're talking about traveling and the Arrive Can app? Is that different, though, than what we're talking about when we're talking about BC's vaccine, vaccine certificate, whatever that's going to look like, or other vaccine certificates in other provinces? Well, I, I would like to get more information and see how, how different this is going to be. For instance, I wanted to go and, and travel um, over the next couple of weeks to visit my family, and I can't because I don't have my BC services card, so I couldn't download uh, my vaccination certificate. So I'm, I'm, I cannot even do that. So that, this is why I'm so concerned about um, the community that we're supporting right now in getting um, in getting uh, their vaccination certificate or or, or a record of, of the vaccines that they have got, like we have more than two thousand people that have access our vaccination clinics that have had already their two vaccine doses, but cannot will not be able to access this unless we work with the government to make this accessible. Do you sense too, or are you getting the idea that there are concerns as well? When we talk about the certificate in BC that will be in place as of September 13th, and this is for what are being called non-essential services, going to a restaurant, going to various places. But the, the, the concern has been raised, I believe, that for a lot of people, while you might not consider a restaurant essential, for people who are perhaps homeless or uh, are are living in certain areas or are more vulnerable, a fast food restaurant might be an essential service, whether it's to use the washroom or whether that's the food that, that, can, that somebody can afford. Uh, and are you concerned that that's going to lead to a situation where, I mean, we might see a person at the door checking people? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely concerned about that. And, and that's, that's a good point that you have raised. Um, but there are other things. Like, for instance, we get... Um, through our, our partners at Kids Up Front, we get free tickets for families to go and see like a soccer game, for instance. And these families have have already enough stress in their lives, uh, having immig- precarious immigration status here in Canada and dealing with that. So having the possibility of going to watch a game, a soccer game, um, for them is a big thing. It's, you know, taking them out of the stressful situation they are living um, with. But having this passport or this certificate um, not being accessible to them so they can show it, so they can go into that soccer game, 
it's like already a thing that it's um, a barrier for them, for us, and for us to be able to give them these free tickets to go and watch that game. So we really need to work with the PHO and uh, the ministry to make this accessible for everyone to get access to either a restaurant or a, a fast food restaurant or a free soccer game that they can watch. Um, to so let's let's work together to in order for this to 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 make it happen. And so to be clear, in a scenario like that, though, uh, we're talking about people. We would be talking about people, wouldn't we, that have been vaccinated? But just your concern exactly. is that they they don't have any way to show it. Exactly. Yes, because we've been having, like I said before, we've been having more than 2,000 people that have come through our vaccination clinics um, that our partners at Vancouver Coastal Health have made possible. But now we're stuck with not being able to get them a vaccination certificate after they came through our vaccination clinic. So they were, I'm talking about people who have already both doses, and we are um, in the midst of scheduling more of these vaccination clinics because we want to make sure that people get their vaccine either because they are they have MSP or not. And most of the people that have come through our vaccination clinics do not have MSP or a PHN. So that's why we're very concerned that they won't be able to get this certificate. Right. Are they getting, though, when they come through your vaccination clinic, are they getting the card or the piece of paper after that at least verifies that they've been vaccinated? That's right. They do get the small car, but this, uh, from what I hear, this small car is not going to help or the yellow paper. And what I hear, that's not also something that will be accepted. Right. And, and would that be a, enough of a fix, do you think, if there was some uh, relaxation of that rule or there was some provision that if you had those papers or the card or the paper? Mine, I think my first one was a, a, a normal piece of letter size paper. My second one was that yellow one that you re- referenced, that if somebody was able to show that maybe with identification, that that should be sufficient? Probably, and, and that will probably be a way of dealing with this and not making, not putting more stress on people. Or, like I said, for the government to work with us and have uh, this uh, accessible that maybe we can print from their site um, at some point and give it to people as they um, get their second dose. Have you had any response or are you, you concerned that here we are 12 days away? Have we had any response from the government, you mean? Mm-hmm. Not, not yet. Um, I haven't heard from the government yet, but hopefully um, we, we, we will have that soon. All right. We will be watching and also looking for clarification and looking for more information on this for everybody, uh, including the people that you're talking about and some of these concerns. Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jill, for having me. All right. Already have quite a few questions that have been emailed to me for our pest guest. So keep them coming if you would prefer to email rather than call in. We will open up the phone lines in about 10 minutes, but you're welcome to email me your question as well. And I'm happy to pass that along. We're talking about this today because of what's happening in Stanley Park and the coyote problem in Stanley Park. Three more attacks on humans overnight and a lot of people saying something needs to be done. The solution of closing the park 
of telling people not to go there after 7 p.m. is simply not good enough. It's not going to fix the problem, and it's not really a long-term solution to say, don't go to this jewel in the city. Don't go to the park. The park is now, what, off, out of bounds for humans? Doesn't make a ton of sense. So this was, uh, this was before we were hearing the calls of this, before we even got the word that three more attacks had happened overnight. The BC Conservation Officer Service saying two of those attacks were on children. Also saying that one coyote that was showing signs of food habituation was killed and that officers will be remaining in the park to patrol that situation. So that was the very latest on that. We started the show today as well talking with John Cooper with the Vancouver Park Board. He and fellow Park Board Commissioner Trisha Barker, both saying they would like an emergency meeting with the board so they can discuss this and take a look at other options. And he's saying that he would like to see the coyotes removed from the park immediately and the park returned to humans, the park returned to people, which I suppose would work as long as the behavior that led to this, the feeding of the coyotes, the whatever the behavior was that led to this, that stopped. So when more coyotes inevitably come to the park, they too don't become habituated and become aggressive and start attacking humans. Well, let's talk now about this with Mike Laundrie, who is the owner of Westside Pest Control. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. What are your thoughts on this? What's happening? We now know there were three more attacks in Stanley Park by these aggressive coyotes. As somebody who deals with pest control, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, anytime you have, um, uh, anytime you have food, shelter, and and water, you're you're gonna have you're gonna have pests, um, and you're gonna have other other wildlife. And and Stanley Park obviously provides those things in abundance. Um, so there's a healthy rat population and a healthy coyote population. Um, you know, it's difficult for me to say 100% what the changes will be, but I would, uh, I would expect it's much more likely that the rats will increase if the coyotes are removed. Which would make sense if that's something that the coyotes aren't only eating human food and eating out of garbage bins, that they would... Um would obviously eat the rats as well. Is it something though, if the coyotes, do you think if they, if there was a call, if the conservation service or however they went about doing it, if they did remove all of the aggressive coyotes, how long would it take? Do you think before other coyotes moved in there? Oh, um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take long well, for, for, for more coyotes. Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, it's, it's interesting that coyotes are, are in Stanley Park because it is, it is a fairly isolated space, you know, between the, the water to the, to the North Shore and, um, and, the, downtown, and the downtown core. Um, when I started hearing the news reports, I was actually quite surprised to find out that there was a high coyote population. I've always known there's been lots of raccoons in Stanley Park, but that was a bit of a surprise. Um, so, in terms of how long it would take for the coyotes to come to come back, it's taken quite a while for them to populate the first time. So, I wouldn't expect it instantaneously. Although, as long as as long as there's some remaining, and there's a food source for them, then they're going to be repopulating at quite uh, at quite a rapid pace. I would expect. 
And, and you mentioned too, then perhaps in that window or for whatever time that the, the coyotes, that if they weren't in the park, we would likely see an increase in the rat population. Are there other animals as well? Would it also, do you think we would see an increase in the, in the squirrel population or would it have an, other impacts on other animals, do you think? Yeah, I would expect to, to to definitely see. I mean, anything that anything that the, that the coyotes would uh, naturally go after as as prey, and rodents are definitely uh, t- top of their list in terms of um, what uh, what natural food sources they're going to be seeking. Um, those animals are going to likely likely increase. So yeah, squirrels. Um, that's a very good point. Uh, voles. Um, yeah, any small rodents uh, or large rodents uh, are likely. To uh, to be to be affected. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we see it all the time in in uh, even in, in people's homes. When we go into somebody's home, if they have uh, a cat, and you know, unless they're you know a really friendly, lazy, overfed cat, the likelihood that they're going to have less or, or or no mice is way more um, is it's it's way more likely than uh, if they didn't have any pets in their home. Have you ever been called out or asked about aggressive coyotes or problem coyotes and asked about ways to deal with them? We do occasionally. It's not a service that we that we provide, so we always pass uh, anybody seeking information on to their local conservation officers. We're talking with Mike Laundrie, the owner of Westside Pest Control. We were talking coyotes and what potentially could happen if they are removed from Stanley Park. But we've also opened up the phone lines and Mike has stay, agreed to stay with us to answer any of your pest control or pest issues, any of your questions. Just before we get to the phone lines, uh, Mike, I want to ask you, I'm getting a few questions coming in on email. So Lisa writes, I have wasps in two, they're building nests in two locations. I live in northern BC. Will they be gone in the spring after a cold winter or should I be doing something now to get them to go live elsewhere? That's a, that's a great question. So wasps do actually vacate nests every, every, every fall. At the, end of the, at the end of the summer, the nest essentially just becomes decaying organic matter. All of the all of the, the the worker wasps will will die off, and only queens or potential queens will will survive. But they won't remain in the nest. They actually go off and overwinter in other locations. They'll over overwinter behind some tree bark, bury themselves deep in the ground, and then emerge and attempt to rebuild new nests in the in the spring. So if you've got a really big nest, it's on your property in close proximity to your house this year. I would advise doing something about it because that means you're likely to have a bunch of wasps next year on your property trying to uh, restart the process again. Do they generally come back to the same place? Uh, it would just be by fluke if they okay. came back to the, to, to the same location. And in fact, if the nest was still there, they likely wouldn't because, again, it's decaying organic matter. It's not a, a, a happy, habitable place for wasps to live. All right. Hopefully that answers that question. I'll take one more on email before we go to the phone lines. Uh, Emma writes, my husband just paid thousands of dollars for a new back lawn. Every morning we find new evidence of digging. Some maybe squirrels were convinced the majority is from raccoons, though. He's tried three different sprays, the latest being blood meal. And we also have a device plugged into the electric. Do you have any suggestions? 
Uh, so likely it is the chafer beetle. That's the the usual offender in terms of uh, grubs being being dug up. Uh, the thing about laying new new sod is it's creating the perfect in environment where there's lots of moisture retention. People are usually watering the lawn regularly, um, so the grubs are really happy and and healthy. Um, most people don't want to hear this advice, but my advice usually when these instances occur, and they're normally before people have replaced all of the sod, if you've got an old dilapidated lawn especially, let it run its course. Putting mesh and sound devices and blood meal and everything else is not going to stop the, the activity. You want to let those animals remove the insects for you, and then when you do reseed or resod make sure you're using a high sand content at least 50 percent sand and and soil so that there's ample drainage and the chafer beetles don't have as nice a place to reside all right good advice let's go to the phone lines and your questions and phyllis what is your question oh i got laryngitis okay oh, can you hear me yep we can hear you yep, yep. i got mice that came from across the street and I'm trying I'm starving them out but they're still here okay well starving them out is a great is a great idea removing their 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 food sources is always the first step sanitation is the first most important step in trying to eliminate mice now the thing is is over the summer mice have been doing this for thousands of years they forward and collect food because they know that fall and winter is approaching so even if you've been starving them for weeks they likely have food reserves that are going to keep them happy and fed they're also neophobic which means that they're afraid of anything new in their environment so as long as they know they have that safe food source doesn't matter what kind of traps and stations you put out it can often take weeks before you start catching any of the mice so my best advice to people is keep the house clean sanitized and just be patient with your uh with your removal process and you'll have success but it may it may not be for the long term all right thanks for that call phyllis hopefully your voice comes back soon uh john in langley what is your question uh my comment was on the coyotes since all the coyotes that are in the park are currently they're not afraid of humans which they should naturally be They've been trained to eat human food that's being fed to them by various people. Um, then they've got to get rid of all the current coyotes that are in the park, whatever method they choose is the best, and then repopulate with coyotes captured from other areas and put into the park to keep the pests the pest down, and then fine people heavily for feeding coyotes and other wild animals. Those are my thoughts. All right, John, thanks for that. Appreciate your thoughts on that. Laura in Vancouver, do you have a question for Mike? Yes, when you were talking about the wasps, and thank you for taking the call, the wasps at my place, they're stuffing the chambers of the nest with uh, larva and sealing it up. What does that mean? What do I do? My dogs uh, sunbathe right under it, and I don't like the larva falling on them, nor do I want them being stung. Hmm. Okay, so it sounds like you likely have umbrella wasps, which are um, very similar in appearance to the more common yellow jacket that builds a big, a big cylindrical nest that can get up to the size of a beach ball at this point in, in August and early September. Um, but when you're seeing the, the, the larvae visibly, 
those are usually an open face nest. They don't get much bigger than a than a, a, a tennis ball, but they kind of look like they're like they're cut in half. Um, those those you can if they're small enough, you can hit them with a garden hose. And if you're not brave enough, um, any over the counter uh, pest control product in a can will take care of that. Although do do take caution. They they are wasps and they do sting. So umbrella wasps. Um, are a lot less intense than the, than the typical yellow jacket. So you're going to feel a sting, but it's about it's about a tenth of the intensity of a traditional wasp or hornet. Um, and uh, the other distinguishing feature of, of umbrella wasps versus yellow jackets is they have long dangly legs and kind of hover in the air versus yellow jackets that zip back and forth. All right. Thanks for that. I wanted to ask you this question on email as well. Uh, this person's writing to me, how best do I deal with a silverfish problem in an older low-rise condo? The problem isn't confined to any particular unit. There are about 40 units in the building. If we were to bring in professional help, what would the cost be like? Is there anything that someone can do in their own condo unit? Yeah, it's... Um I've mentioned it, uh, you know, I've mentioned it many times to people. Silverfish have been thriving for over 300 million years in climates just like ours. Uh, so they're not, they're not going anywhere. And the older a building gets, the more moisture ingress that is likely to occur and, and, and moisture that the building is likely to retain. Uh, and that's what silverfish are, are really after is, is, um, they, they target areas of high humidity. So the, the first step I always suggest to people is turn a bathroom fan on, turn your kitchen fans on as often as, as you can. Open the window in your, in your laundry room um, uh, when, you're, when you're doing laundry if you can. And even purchase an over-the-counter dehumidifier. That will make a big difference. If you can drop the humidity below 50%, the adult silverfish will survive, but they won't be able to reproduce, and it'll slow down um, the, the population. In a building like that, though, with, if there's that many in multiple units, they are likely to need uh, professional service. We normally provide free inspections and, and quotes. So, you know, in terms of pricing, it's kind of hard to do over the phone, but I would reach out to, you know, a few companies, us, us included, I hope, and, um, and ask for a, a quote and a bit more advice on, getting rid of them. One more thing to add, even if a pest control company comes in, you're going to see improvement, but it's never going to be 100% eradicated.